Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. However, the focus is solely on verse 15 for the sermon this morning. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, reading verses 14 through 17. hear God's word for as many as are led by the spirit of God these are the sons of God for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out of a father the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together again verse 15 being the focus For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that you have granted unto your church the spirit of adoption. We thank you that you are a father unto us and we your children. And we ask you that through the preaching of your word, you might shed great light upon a text such as this and that you would enable us to find encouragement and grace and strength by the Spirit through the preaching, through the hearing with faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thus far in uh, these verses, verses 14 through 17, we've only settled one question, and that is, who are the sons of God? You notice Paul says, these are the sons of God. Well, who are these? Who are they? And the answer to the question is those who are led by the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. And we considered what was involved in that last time. In particular, what was involved in the subject of being led by the Spirit, the leading of the Spirit. What's involved in that? Seeing that if we are able to conclude that we are being led by the Spirit, well then, we might know with confidence and with assurance that we are numbered among the sons of God. So that we would say not only that these are the sons of God as a kind of proposition, but having believed that proposition, we are able in turn to apply it to ourselves and to say, I am the son of God. I am numbered among the children of God. This is uh, what I call the first step or the first rung in the ladder of assurance. Being conscious that we are being led by the Spirit, if indeed we are, there ought to be a sense that we are sons. We begin there. In this, I also spoke of the value of being sure, the value of having and enjoying assurance and growing in our assurance as Christians. And in the midst of doing that, I raised, though I did not answer, an important question And that is the question which was raised by the reformers in their insistence upon a believer enjoying assurance. The question is whether they went too far. Did the reformers, I mean men like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all, well, uh, the men who are for so many of us heroes of the Christian faith. Did they go too far with this? If you're familiar at all with their teaching, you will be familiar with the way in which they tended to equate faith and assurance. To have faith was to have assurance. In fact, if you read Calvin, for instance, in his Institutes, his description of faith, in his chapter on faith, 
might just as easily be read as a chapter on assurance. He equates the two. Luther did the same thing. The suggestion of these men was that to be a Christian involved having assurance. And I commended them in this. And I com- I, I, last time I commend them still. But here I want to agree with those who suggested they went a bit too far. Again, the question being whether faith and assurance are the same thing. Whether having faith of necessity involves having assurance. As I said, the reformers tended to equate these two things. To have faith was to have assurance. And they did so for this obvious reason. They did so because they were battling Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. And the bane of Rome's existence then and now is assurance. If any man says that he might be assured in this life of his salvation, let him be accursed. That was, that was the, uh, the dictate of Trent, which has never been overturned to this day. And they were saying, no, not at all. A believer may in this life be assured of his salvation. Now of that, we may surely agree with them. A believer may in this life be assured of his salvation. But unwittingly, perhaps, they created a pastoral problem. That others later had to confront in light of their teaching. Namely, whether one who lacks assurance can still be a Christian. In other words, whether in fact faith and assurance are the same thing, are to be equated, or whether they are uh, separate things. To be placed in distinct categories. Whether one can have faith and thus be a Christian and yet still lack assurance. You, You can easily understand and foresee and I'm certain on some level I've experienced the pastoral problem I've, I, I, I'm expounding. The question uh, being, I lack the kind of assurance that Paul is describing here. Am I therefore not a believer? Now that's the pastoral problem that perhaps the reformers will not be of much help to you. But there were those who later came along, the Puritans especially, and even men today who said, we've got to handle this pastoral problem. We need to be able to reassure people, so to speak. Uh, who have faith and yet who lack assurance that they are indeed Christians because these are indeed distinct categories. And so the answer to the question is yes, a believer might have faith and thus be a Christian and yet lack assurance, even the kind of assurance that Paul is describing here in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Now this is something that the Westminster Confession of Faith, I won't read it, but it, it famously deals with a century later. Or was it two centuries? Now I can't remember. At any rate, it was later on, uh, after the reformers. And they said, well, assurance of faith does not so belong to to, to saving faith. Uh, I, I need to read it. I can't remember. They say, it does not so belong to the essence of faith. There's the line. Assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he become a partaker of it. There you see they make the distinction. They solve, in other words, the pastoral problem. But then separating these two things and reassuring the the faithful that in seasons where they lack assurance, they might still They might still be told and assured even that they are believers. Separating these two things as we rightly ought to do, we should then ask, is assurance a difficult thing to obtain? And in light of that question, might we share the confidence of the reformers that anyone who has faith might also have 
assurance. And what do we find if we kept reading in the Westminster Confession of Faith? We'll hold on to that question. Might we say that every believer really ought to have assurance? Yes, it's possible that perhaps he might lack it for a time. But let's ask the question a different way. Ought he to have it? Is it a difficult thing? Or do we find, as Edward says, that in the New Testament times it was a common thing? It was an ordinary experience for Christians in the New Testament. And so it ought to be for us as well, as we sit under its teaching. Well, the clearest indication of this is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. He says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. There's the first answer to my question. Ought believers to have assurance? You see, that's a different question than can they lack it? Yes, they can lack it. But what then? Well, Peter says they ought to be diligent in, in, in seeking it. Be diligent to make your calling and election sure. That's the standard. Or you think of all the things that John says in his first epistle. I wrote these things so that you might know that you are the children of God. In other words, the whole of the epistle was an encouragement to believers to enjoy assurance. Never to entertain doubts as to their own Christianity. You see, that's how you solve the pastoral problem. You don't say a believer never experiences doubts in this life. But you say, well, how does he deal with the doubts? You remember as well what Hebrews chapter 6 says, that the goal of the Christian life is that we might enjoy a full assurance of hope unto the end. And in all this, the picture is clear. The picture is that it is the duty of the believer to seek assurance if he lacks it. Yes, he may lack it. But what then? Well, it's his duty to be diligent in seeking it all the way to the end of his course. To be content with nothing less than this, a full assurance of hope to the end. And so if we keep reading the confession, which places faith and assurance in separate categories. Yes, indeed, this infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith. But a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. Yet, being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of ordinary means, attain thereunto. And therefore, it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure. Uh, and on and on it goes. You see how it has Second Peter chapter 1 in mind. So that's how I would untangle the knot. That the reformers unwittingly created. I would do so along the lines of the Westminster Confession of Faith. What I'm saying is this. As we come to the verses which are before us. Paul is describing an experience of assurance. A blessed experience of assurance. Something uh, that we might experience in an ever increasing way. In other words, we might go from one thing to the next. Ascending the ladder. But it's also possible that he would be describing things that either you have not yet known as a Christian or you do not presently know. And yet it is still true that you are a Christian. Well, let me just leave it there before I continue to exhort you to seek these things. I'll save that for the end of the sermon. Let me just simply say, yes, it's possible that you wouldn't know in this precise moment or there would be seasons in your life. I, I don't know what Paul is talking about. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? No, it doesn't. 
Well, let me put it like this. Another, uh, another knot to untie, so to speak. As we look at this, uh, remember I said last time, this is, in, in essence, these sermons are a sustained treatment of the subject of assurance. Confronting the difficulties, answering the objections. Well, here's another one. It is likely and it is possible to arrive at a kind of assurance based on lazy thinking. There are people, I'm saying, who think they have assurance but who don't have it. They achieved it not in the way that Scripture is describing. They don't actually know what Paul is describing here. They rather know know something like this. Uh, Reassuring themselves in this way. Well, I suppose I'm a Christian and I needn't worry over it anymore. But that isn't the picture of the New Testament. Just a kind of resignation. That's what I'm describing. Or complacency. That is not a true assurance. That is not the true scriptural picture. True assurance, the Bible tells us, comes only by diligence, by a a diligent seeking. Furthermore, true assurance only comes from uh, a deep personal acquaintance with the person of the Holy Spirit. It isn't just a lazy complacency, lazy thinking. Here's a man who's diligently seeking after the blessing. And he's content with nothing less than the blessing. How does he find it? By the Holy Spirit. Not by his own lazy thinking, but by the Holy Spirit. And it does not rest until it finds what it seeks. Be diligent, Peter says, to make your uh, election and calling sure. You see, it's a result of diligence, not lazy thinking. But then seeing this as a kind of progression. Assurance is something that we begin to enjoy and then we grow in more and more. And seeing even back of assurance, faith itself, not equating the two, but saying, well, a man first has to have faith, then he arrives at assurance as a result of his faith. And then we go on from there within the category of assurance to see that there is progression as well. First, a man arrives at one kind of assurance, the lowest form, and then he, exper- he, he progresses rather in his experience to the other higher forms. Last time we considered the lowest form, the kind of assurance which a man arrives at by reasoning out a proposition. You see, this isn't lazy thinking I'm describing here. This is a man who is in earnest. He's exercising faith. He considers the promise. He considers the description of a Christian in verse 14. And then he looks at himself in light of this. He says, this is the promise of Scripture. That those who are being led by the Spirit may be sure they're the sons of God. Therefore, if I'm being led, you see, he reasons out the proposition. He uses his mind. If I'm being led, I may safely conclude about myself that I am among the sons of God. Here is, in other words, my testimony about myself. Now, hold on to that thought as well for next week. This is what I testify about myself. Soon we'll see God's testimony about us in verse 16. But we must take everything uh, in its proper turn. We begin with our testimony about ourselves, hopefully, that we are able to say, I'm a Christian. Indeed, is that not what a profession of faith is? Isn't that how we begin the journey in the church? We profess faith. We declare, I'm a Christian. God has saved me. Here's the evidence and so on. And I've arrived at this conclusion and this conviction once more by Believing what the scripture says and applying this to myself. But that's the first rung. Verse 15. Verse 14 is the first. Verse 15. We ascend to something higher. It's possible to go further with this. And that is what Paul tells us in verse 15. 
And then, as we'll see, he goes a step further and higher in verse 16. What he says in verse 15 is this. Let me read it again. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. You see, that's something further. That's something higher. Again, let me stress, you have to observe the order here. You can't get to verse 15 without verse 14. What Paul describes in verse 15 is not available except to those who are being led by the Spirit. Those, uh, a verse back of that, who are by the Spirit mortifying the deeds of the flesh. Yes, these are the ones who are being led by the Spirit, verse 14. And these are the ones who may safely and confidently conclude of themselves that they are the sons of God. And of them, Paul says... You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The way you get to verse 15 is by verse 14, by way of verse 14. Well, let us look at what he says in verse 15. He tells us, he's told us in verse 14 already, these are the sons of God. Well, what about them? What can we say about the sons of God? In other words, what does it mean to be a son of God? And, And by the way, how did I ever come into this position? And that's what Paul uh, begins to describe in verse 15. He, he describes what's involved in our sonship and how we ever came to, uh, to become sons in the first place. And the answer that he gives is by adoption. By adoption. Now the answer is also, by the way, that we've been born again. Both things are true, though uh, they are not the same thing. The Christian is someone who was born a sinner. He was born a son of Adam. But by grace and by the Spirit, he's been born again. His nature has been changed. But as one who's been born again, he was not left as an orphan. For God says that this person who's been born again has been adopted into the family of God. And that the standing and and station which he now assumes and enjoys, now and forever, is that of the sons of God. These are the sons of God. Who? Well, those who've been adopted. Those who've been born again and adopted into God's family. Who made us sons? It was God. God made us sons. Let us see. This is not what we were by nature. By nature, children of wrath, sons of Adam. But by grace, born again, adopted sons of God. Truly, that's the teaching. Let us also see as a second point, the Trinitarian nature of this. To say that we have been adopted in, in, in the scriptural sense, is to speak of this as a fully Trinitarian blessing. This is what I mean. It is the Father who has adopted us, not the Spirit. Let us not confuse that point, nor the Son. When we speak of our adoption, we are speaking uh, in particular of our relationship to our Father who is in heaven, the first person of the Trinity. He is the one who has adopted us. He is the one who has made us sons and who now regards us as sons. He is the one we address now as father. Well, what about the son? Well, he has a part to play in this as well. For he is the one, Paul will later tell us in verse 20, who stands supreme amongst many brethren. He is the firstborn among many brethren. What am I saying? Well, I'm saying that by adoption, by being made sons of God, we are made now brothers of Jesus Christ. Can you believe that? Do you realize that that is actually the position of the Christian by Adoption, by the way, it wasn't verse 20, it's verse 29. We are related now to Jesus as fellow sons and joint heirs. Verse 18. 
Or is it verse 17? It's verse 17. We just read that. Well, let us not. We, we are related to Jesus Christ. He is our brother. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. For that is what we are. Hebrews chapter 2. Let us not begin to think of ourselves as equals with him. We do not stand on a par with Jesus. He is the firstborn. He's the only begotten. He stands in a position which is supreme and unique. And yet fully recognizing that and acknowledge his supremacy as the son of God uniquely. Are you not amazed to hear that we are made to share in his station and his privilege as sons? Such becomes the thought of verse 17. And if children, listen, this is our relation to Jesus. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. But what about the Holy Spirit? He's the real focus of verse 15 and verse 16. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. It's not the spirit who adopts. Let us be clear about that. But it is the spirit whom we have received as the spirit of adoption. And so it is his presence in us leading us, which has a direct bearing on our sonship. And it's the fact that we've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit that we become conscious of our sonship. But you notice he first puts it in the negative. He says, you've not received and Paul likes to do that. He often will state a positive by stating a negative first and then uh, highlighting the positive in contrast to the negative. And so before telling us what we have received, he says, well, you haven't received the spirit in this way. You've not received. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. That's the first thing he says. In other words, in receiving the Holy Spirit, you did not receive him in this way. You did not receive him as a spirit of bondage. His coming into your life, his leading you and so on, did not produce feelings of bondage again, but something different altogether. And do you realize that Paul seems to indicate here that the Christian is someone who is familiar with the spirit of bondage to fear? Which is why he uses the word again. He says, you did not receive the spirit uh, of bondage again unto fear. As though to say, well, you've already received it, haven't you? You're already familiar with it. You know all about it. You know exactly what I'm talking about it. There was a time that you were and that you, uh, in and had received the spirit of bondage unto fear. The Puritans called this a period of compunction. A period of conviction and bondage. This is the mark, as John Murray says, of the pre-Christian state. The unbeliever is a slave. He's in bondage to fear. And what does he fear? Well, he fears God. That's the point. He doesn't relate to God as a son, but as a slave. He's afraid of God. He's terrified of him. He's enslaved by his fear. The last thing he ever wants to think about is God. The last thing he ever wants to do is to relate to God or pray to God or hear about God. He knows nothing of the love of God. He doesn't live to please God. Indeed, he cannot, Paul says. And I'm saying that's what we all know. If we're Christians, we remember the state well. We remember what it's like to be an unbeliever. We remember what it's like to be sold in bondage to fear, the fear of God. 
to live in fear, to be afraid of him, afraid to go on to him. But Paul is saying that isn't how you receive the Holy Spirit if you have received him. We haven't as a result of his power coming into our lives been driven back to our old position. The spirit in coming to you didn't begin again to produce in you feelings of fear and bondage. You did not become as a result of his coming afraid of God, afraid to go unto him. No, Paul says we've been brought into a new position altogether. He's the spirit of adoption, not the spirit of bondage and fear. And so then positively, Paul says, you have received the spirit of adoption. That's what's true of a man who is a Christian as a result of receiving the Holy Spirit. He's received the spirit. The spirit dwells in him, Paul says, verse 9. And now he expands upon the thought, verse 15. The way the spirit dwells in you as a person is as the spirit of adoption. So that the Christian is someone who's begun as a result of the blessed ministry of the Holy Spirit to enjoy the liberty of sons, not the bondage of slavery, but the liberty of sons. And do you notice that Paul describes this in terms of an experience of grace? No, you haven't received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. He says, in essence, that the role of the spirit in coming to us, in leading us on as sons, the result, in other words, of receiving him as a gift of the father. The father who has adopted us and who's given us the spirit is that we become conscious of our sonship. You see, we're already sons. That's true of you already, automatically, if you're a Christian. But the result of the Spirit is that He makes you aware of it. And thus He enables you to relate to God as your Father, for that's what He is and that's what you are, His Son. It's the Spirit who gives you confidence and boldness in the presence of God. This God whom you once feared in bondage. Now you relate to Him as a Son. So He makes you aware of your adoption. That's the point here. That's how He's the Spirit of adoption. This is something... Uh, beyond the deduction of verse 14. This is an experience of grace as a result of receiving the Spirit and being led by Him. The result is that we are aware inwardly of our adoption as sons. And practically, He expresses it like this. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now that's very similar, though it isn't exactly the same. The statement that he makes in chapter 4, verse 6 of Galatians. This is what he said. We read this last time. He says, because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. That's perhaps the most Trinitarian statement of what I've, what I've been describing that you find in Scripture. God the Father has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Well, you see, there it's the spirit who's crying out, Abba, Father. But here... In verse uh, 15 of chapter 8 of Romans, it is we who cry out by the Spirit, Abba, Father. It is the Spirit who produces the feeling of sonship and thus the cry unto God as Abba, Father. And there's no one else who's capable of doing so. You cannot enjoy this blessing and this experience of grace except as the result of receiving the Spirit as the Spirit of adoption into your hearts. 
There is no man who is capable of crying out to God like this, except the man who has received the spirit of adoption. So that we could say verse 14 has to do with the head, but verse 15 has to do with the heart. You receive the spirit into your hearts, Galatians 4, 6. And the heart which is so full of the spirit of adoption is led to cry out to God like a son. He yearns for God. He cries out to God. Let me, let me stress and underline that word cry. It has the sense of, of a loud uh, and earnest cry out to God. Not a feeble prayer, but an earnest prayer. An, uh, a, a, uh, even a loud prayer. Loud cries. Here is one who relates to God purely as a son. And what I'm describing here in this experience, what I'm saying in particular is that we find these words on our lips, these exact words. In fact, this is the hallmark, hallmark rather, of this experience of sonship. It is the crying out of the words, Abba, Father. I would stress this as something exceptional and unusual. Suddenly, the believer, as he's led by the Spirit, receives the Spirit in a special way and is made to utter these words in a very earnest manner. The Spirit of adoption is given to all believers, but the experience of crying out to him like this is what is unusual. It is a distinct manifestation of the Spirit of adoption and an unmistakable experience in the life of the believer. The believer becomes, in this moment, conscious of his sonship, of his special relation to God in a very special way. He utters these words with an unusual degree of confidence. He is aware in a sense that he's not doing so on his own, but as a result of receiving the Spirit as the Spirit of adoption. And many of you I know can testify to this. Times in your life when you were uh, enabled and even, even in some sense compelled to utter these words in prayer with a particular unction from the Spirit as the Spirit of adoption. Perhaps these were the only words you uttered. Suddenly you found yourself saying in a season of prayer, Abba, Father, nothing more. You simply cried out to God as your Father in heaven. The words then were not so ordinary as they can be. The profundity of them struck you. And were uttered with a power previously unknown. Suddenly you were laying hold of God. And knowing him as your father who art in heaven. As only a son can. And it became one of the profoundest experiences of your life. You never forget it. That's what Paul is describing here. Those who are being led by the spirit. Those who know they are sons. Yes, and they and only they are able to receive the spirit of adoption and to cry out, Abba, Father. And do you see how such an experience leads a man one step further in his assurance? He had reasoned it out in his mind, verse 14. But now it comes to him in a powerful experience. He's made to cry, Abba, Father, in prayer. He cries out to God with all the energy and unction of the spirit. He's a son, yes. But now suddenly his sonship expresses itself in a new way with these exact words as a distinct and unmistakable experience. Of course, I realize that any man might utter them. Any man might say to God in prayer, Abba, Father. But that's not what I'm describing here. And anyone who's ever uttered these words in the way that I'm describing knows that that's not what I'm saying. 
nor what you experienced. The one who does so by the Spirit knows it as a distinct experience. He's able to say, I was thus led to utter these words by the Spirit. It didn't occur to me to utter them until suddenly I found myself doing so by the energy and the leading of the Spirit. I was made to cry out to Abba Father. I was led by the Spirit as a son. Do you realize this? And do you see that this is the exact opposite of the spirit of bondage? This experience of grace, this experience of sonship. It arises not out of a feeling of bondage or fear, but out of a feeling of love to God. uh, What I would call a familiar feeling. A familiar feeling, not a formal feeling, not a feeling of dread, not a feeling of of distance, but a feeling of familiarity. I know God and I know him as a father. I know that I'm his son. I have this sense inwardly that God may be be approached with the confidence of a son and nothing less than that. In other words, such a man isn't afraid of going to God, but he is enabled with confidence to draw near by the blood of Jesus. As Hebrew says, he is animated in this. By a feeling of love for God. Suddenly he is drawn To God as his father. How so? By the spirit. You see he didn't reason this part out in his mind. This is in the realm of experience. That's what Paul is describing. He's describing something that you enjoy. And you know only in a season of prayer. The love of a son for his father. The confidence to draw near into his presence. With the certainty that he will receive us. And he will love us. And he will accept us. As his own son. Let me stress. Again, that this occurs suddenly by the unction of the spirit coming upon you. The receiving of the spirit is the spirit of adoption. It isn't something that you can manufacture. It isn't something that you can produce artificially. It's something that happens to you. But at the same time, the result of it is long lasting. It may only happen once. Or it may happen many times. But the impression that it makes uh, is lasting. The result of the cry is that our standing as sons is made sure to us. It occurs to us now in the realm of our experience, in the arena of prayer, in the presence of God, that only a true son of God could ever relate to God in this way. None but the true sons of God could ever cry out with such confidence and familiarity. Abba, Father. And it becomes in this way another clear manifestation to us that we are being led by the spirit as sons. For now he has made known to us our sonship by solid experience. We cried out to God as our father and found him to be so to us in in an unforgettable and unmistakable way. Now, going back to the earlier point in the sermon, I would not suggest that a man who has not had this experience of grace, I'm calling it. Receiving the spirit is a spirit of adoption by whom we cry out of a father. That any man here who is not experienced is by definition not a Christian. I'm not saying that. But I would say that if he is a Christian and he has not had this experience, that his Christianity is deficient. That something is missing. There's a piece that, that is still yet uh, to fit into his Christianity. He still doesn't know, if I could put it this way, What it's like to be a son in the practical sense. 
He's yet to be moved by the Spirit to cry out to God in this special way, Abba, Father. A son is able to cry out to God as Father with all the confidence in the world that God receives him as a son and thus hears his cry and responds. And so ultimately, I'm saying that this is a matter of assurance that comes to us in the realm of experience by the Spirit. I say again, it cannot be manufactured. It is not something that you can produce or simply simply do of your own strength and your own volition. Did you notice the other word received? Let me attach special importance to that as well. You have received. This is something which can only be given as a matter of grace. As a matter of the Spirit coming upon you. You cannot manufacture it. You can only receive it. You can only experience it as a secret transaction between the soul and God. This is how the Holy Spirit leads us as sons. This is how we receive him. He leads us to cry out. He makes us feel and act as sons. I would almost say that there is nothing better than this. Nothing higher. This is the very pinnacle of Christian experience, except there is something even better than this. Something even higher in the realm of our experience as sons. And thank God we will consider that in the coming sermon. And that is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Just to preview that. that The sense here is, verse 15, I'm a son, I love the Father, I'm able to cry out to him as, as the Father. I love God, verse 15. Verse 16, the Father saying, you are my son, I love you. Do you see that as something that's even higher, something even better? The love of God shed abroad in our hearts. Well, that, uh, thank God, we'll consider next time. But for now, I simply ask you, do you know anything about this? What I'm describing in verse 15. The son animated with feelings of love for the father. This familiar feeling who is enabled by the unction of the spirit to cry out. Abba, father, have you ever been led to cry out to God like this? Overwhelmed by the sense that God is your father and you his son. There is not a single Christian who should be content with anything less than this. For if we are sons, then we have received the spirit as a spirit of adoption. But perhaps we have not known this experience of the spirit of adoption and of grace. What then are we to do? Well, is it not plain that we ought to ask the father in a special way to grant it to us? Oh, father, let us receive the spirit in just this way. Enable me by the Spirit to cry out to you as a son. The early Christians lived in such days of of outpouring that practically all knew it. That's why Paul could say, we've all received it. We, We haven't received the Spirit in this way. We received him as the Spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. But I dare say there are Christians today who do not know it, who have yet to experience the Spirit in this way. Well, then I say to you, pray for it. Ask and seek and knock and you shall find. For the Spirit was given to you for this very reason. To assure you of your sonship. And to enable you to cry out in the special way unto God, Abba Father. Amen. And let us now come to the table.